us this morning. Let's bow our heads and give thanks for a great country. We would be remiss this morning, Father, if we didn't take this weekend, uh, Memorial Day weekend, where we are mindful of the high cost of freedom. And uh, we gather corporately without fear. We are purchasing a great piece of property in a great location because so much freedom is given to us in this great country. And we know that comes at a high cost. Thank you for the men and women who have given their lives an active service to defending that freedom. Thank you for the men and women in this room, God, who are currently actively serving. And that comes at a high cost, sometimes away from family and friends. And for the ones in this room who have since retired but have given so much of their lives to defending the freedom that we so freely enjoy. And we thank you for those men and women. And God, I pray for our country. I, I pray that war would always be a last resort. I pray for peace on earth, and by that, God, I pray for the movement of your church who uplifts the gospel of Christ, because you, Heavenly Father, have taught us the high cost of freedom. Spiritual freedom has come by the sacrifice of your Son, and I pray that your church would be a self-sacrificing people for the fame of God and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ that your church would be the ultimate vehicle of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And so this morning, as we dive into your word, God, I pray that uh, we're going to be looking at some passages over the coming weeks that are culturally sensitive and in some ways culturally divisive. And God, it's your church that has lost its sense of truth. And because of that, God, we're not impacting the culture as we should be. I pray that Coastal would look at the word of God and call it truth and build on that. Thank you for this opportunity this morning. Thank you for Memorial Day where we pause and we collectively remember the high cost of our freedom. And I pray, Lord, that as a culture, you would bring us back to the truths of the word of God, that we would know the truth, and the truth indeed would set us free. We give you thanksgiving, and we give you praise, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a great weekend, so make sure you don't just grill out, but you take some time to give thanks to God for the freedoms we so enjoy. Do me a favor, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy. And uh, I'm going to be doing a series over the summer, myself and some, some of the other pastors here at Colster are going to join with me in the teaching, and uh, we're going to do a series on 1 Timothy. And uh, this is a letter that I've been wanting to go through for many years, and so there's a handout in your bulletin. If you all have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. Okay, if you don't own a Bible, do me a favor, take that one with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, while you're kind of getting that ready, we're going to start in verse 3 this morning of 1 Timothy. While you're kind of getting all that out, I want to just bring a quick reminder to you. Uh, the Financial Peace University class, FPU class, is going to be this Thursday. And, uh, and kind of in light of the Beyond series, it's a great teaching to follow up with. You know, maybe uh, you wanted to give more or maybe there's not margins in your life to give uh, because debt is kind of uh, swallowing you up. Let me encourage you. This is a 
great class. Maybe you're debt-free and it's a reminder for you, okay? It's a fantastic class. It's on Thursday night. The, the details are in your bulletin. Uh, Coastal also has um, some teachers uh, that are equipped to teach the class that can come to your small group. So maybe your small group will want to do it over the summer, uh, and they'll come to you, okay? And then we also have a couple scholarships available because I know the material's coming to cost. And so uh, if you would, if, if the scholarship, if the finances are keeping you from taking that class, do me a favor, put on a tear off and need a scholarship with your name, and we'll get with you this week, and then we'll make sure that you have the resources you need to go through that class, okay? I, uh, I, um, I, in my 20 years of marriage, I've owned two dogs. Um, neither dog has been a great pet, okay? They're just, they've been kind of nuisance dogs, okay? And, and, and so I have uh, one of our new financial, uh, I mean, administrative assistants at Coastal, uh, she's a great pet owner, and in our dialogue, it, it's dawned on me that maybe, just maybe now, it hasn't been the dog's fault, it's been the owner's fault, okay? That's just dawned on me recently, right? And so uh, this lady who loves these dogs, one of the things she recently told me, she said, does your dog have a job? I'm like, I wish. I wish it would bring some income into the house. That'd be great, you know? I'm like, not that I'm aware of. She goes, no, when you have a dog... You have to give it a job. She goes, like, for instance, my dog, she says, I've trained my dog to look for squirrels. And it sits at the window, and it guards the house. It's looking for squirrels. And as she said that, I was like, I have given my dog a job. Inadvertently, I didn't know. But now I realize the job that I've given, I've given my dog one job. It guards everything from me, okay? <laughs> so the food, when it's around its food, it, it sits by its food. And anytime I walk in the house, it growls at me, Okay? <laughs> When my children come home from school, loves my kids, it'll curl up on the laps of my kids, and as I walk by, he snarls and growls at me. And I realize my dog thinks his job is to guard all that is sacred inside the house, except the one that provides everything for this dog, right? You know. And so I thought about that, and I thought, you know, as I teach Timothy, and I've been wanting to teach Timothy now for years, and, and I think it's a great picture, maybe not the snarling part, okay, but our job as a church, and what Paul is teaching in Timothy is the idea that the church is kind of the guardian of the gospel. In fact, this is a great uh, letter to this young pastor, and he it's actually, it's, um, it's actually kind of a structural book. Like, what does the church look like? What is the structure of the church? Look like? How are we set up a church? How do we make decisions? And he does this because it's very important that a church be biblically structured so that the gospel can be protected and guarded and be an influence in the culture and in society. Does that make sense? We're going to be... Um, there's going to be some passages coming up in a couple weeks, okay, that are going to be uncomfortable, there's going to be some passages coming up that are culturally sensitive, okay? And, and, and here's what these passages are going to do for you because we look through them. And, and I always say sometimes the problem with the Scripture is not that it's unclear to us. The sometimes the problem with the Scripture is it's abundantly clear to us. It's so clear that it smacks against culture, and we're not really always sure what to do with that. And so there's going to be some passages in the coming weeks where we're going to have to decide as a community, like, is it me over the scriptures? Do I have authority to tell the scriptures what I think based on culture, or is it the other way around? Does the scripture have authority over me, and I better adjust to what the Bible says is true. Does that make sense? And so that we're going we're gonna to come across that in the coming weeks. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a challenge, okay? 
And so I've, I've wanted to teach on this for a couple reasons, and I actually picked this summer uh, intentionally, all right, to teach on this letter. And, and this is a letter where the Apostle Paul is mentoring this young pastor named Timothy that he has left to be in one of the churches that he planted. All right, so he's a, Paul tends to be a church planner, and he wants to raise up pastors and, and elders in the churches that he plants to lead the church over the long haul. And so Paul uh, invests in Timothy. And the reason that this, past, this letter means so much to me personally is, is this is the first church I ever pastored, all right? And I took it over when I was like 28 or 30 years old. I forget now. And, and I was a young guy, and I would just read this letter over and over and meditate on it because I just felt like the Apostle Paul was talking to me, this young pastor. And I, was, I was gaining wisdom, and I was gaining encouragement from the letter. But the reason I chose this summer to preach on it is I actually thought, and this kind of goes back to the Beyond series and the vision I laid out in front of us over the spring, I actually thought that we were going to be pursuing campuses. Remember that? Now, God has given us a little bit of a different direction, but I was thinking, man, we're about to scatter our church across the peninsula, and Sean can only be at one spot at one time, and so I wanted to make sure that we had an understanding of what the structure of a church looks like. I'm not backing off that because I believe we're going to continue to grow as a church and influence the peninsula. But I want to be clear, like we structured Coastal Community Church. A lot of our thinking and a lot of our structure comes out of this letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy so that we know, man, what does a church look like? What does the biblical order look like so that the gospel of Christ can be passed down from one generation to the next so that we can guard the truth of God's word in a healthy way and pass it down and influence the community. Does that make sense? So that's where we are, and that's where we're going this morning. And so, um, and so with that, uh, the first couple verses, which I'm kind of skipping over, First Timothy, and by the way, I hope that you'll, you'll spend some time over the summer. I hope you'll read this letter multiple times. It's a short read. I mean, you could, you could probably read a chapter a day and, and get through it multiple times over the summer, okay? And, and so Paul here, in the first couple verses, he introduces his God-given apostolic authority, all right? I don't have time this morning to teach on what makes an apostle, okay? But apostles were those who actually saw Christ bodily here on earth. And, and Paul will talk about how his, uh, his apostleship was one of kind of born later as, as Christ showed up to him on the road to Damascus. And, you know, he was born at a different time, he kind of says. And, uh, and, so, and so he claims his authority over this letter and over the church, okay? And then he gets in. He says, Timothy, you're kind of my son in the faith. And I want to train you, okay? And then here's his first charge to young Timothy that we'll take as a church at Coastal Community Church. But he says, he, he teaches the idea of right and wrong teaching inside, the, inside of a church body is paramount to a healthy church. All right? The, church, the, the word we use in church life is the word doctrine. It sounds really intimidating, okay? But it's, it's just a body, of, it's a collection of beliefs that a church holds to be true. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. Check this out, all right? He said, when I left you in Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those who were teaching contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Now, let me park here for one moment here this morning, all right? First thing I want you to see is the importance of right doctrine. 
It's very important in the life of the church, right teaching, having a right understanding of the scriptures. And Paul here makes it a priority. He says, the, notice in, in this letter to this young pastor that, that he, you know, that he, 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 he's leaving behind in this church he planted, and he says, listen, the priority of what I want you to do is, is teaching correct doctrine. Isn't that interesting? Think about that. You know, in, in the world I grew up in, and I think this has changed some over, over the last maybe 10 or 15 years, but uh, as I was growing up, the priority for a church was to pick its music style. Remember those days? The priority of a church is, you know, a program. Well, this church needs to, and then, boy, we got to do it. And, you know, churches get all spun up about the program or body life or the ministry. Paul says, listen, I want to be clear that teaching influences people, right? It influences your thinking, and a thought becomes a behavior, and a behavior becomes a pattern, and a pattern becomes a lifetime, and a lifetime becomes generational. Does that make sense? And so he's very clear. Like, it's you got to teach the right. you got to teach what is true, Timothy. you got to prioritize above all else right teaching, right doctrine. And at Coastal, you know, we have what we call our eight essentials, and we don't waver off these, and, and they're narrow enough for us to understand what we're doing, what we're teaching. And, and if you're like, man, what is, what is the eight essential doctrines, okay? You need to come to our We Are Coastal class next week. How's that for a shameless plug? Because that's what we cover. We want you to know that. And we want you to know it on the front end. If you're thinking about joining Coastal Community Church, like, we want you to know on the front end what are our eight essentials. That they're broad enough. We understand there's some areas in Scripture that maybe uh, there's some vagueness, and we can, we can still link arms together and maybe disagree on some of the minor things. But our eight major things we don't waver on because we understand we have to have right doctrine in order to be a church that lasts from one generation to the next. And we understand that Timothy says this is a priority, is, is right teaching and right doctrine. And I know a lot of times man, we glaze over when you start talking about doctrine. And we're going to get into here in just a moment the very first thing Paul says, which is fascinating. It's going to be fascinating. You're about to be fascinated what Paul says. This is the first thing I want you to tackle in right teaching and right doctrine. Now, he's very clear. There's an outcome to false doctrine. There's an outcome to false teaching. The first is disunity. There's an outcome to, to false doctrine. It's disunity. One of the reasons we're, we're clear at Coastal on the front end, if you decide to make this your church home, we're very clear. Like This is what we believe. These are our core doctrines. That's why we call them our essentials. We don't waver off these. In fact, we're, we'd be willing to, 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 to be thrown in prison if the culture show shifted against the church. Like we would be, We're not wavering off of these, which the first one is we believe the Bible is the word of God. Okay, when I, when I lifted this up, okay, a little bit ago, I said, we're going to have to ask the question, is it this or this? Like, at Coastal, it's this. We're under this. It's truth, even when it's culturally uncomfortable. Because we believe God knows what he's doing better than us. And I know that gets, man, that's hard for us to digest. But at Coastal, man, we're, we'd say, man, we would be willing to suffer for the sake of the truth of God's word. All right? I've got to tell you something. Um, last, last week was incredible for me. I, I, I got the blessing of sitting in three services and watching, watching the people of God link arms together 
and give of what is the hardest thing in this culture to give of, really. Because we're bombarded with the idolatry of money, right? And, and watch the people of God celebrate. I mean, this service, and this, uh, there were a couple services where it was like, I felt like the, the people were cheering as they're giving their money away. Like, what is, I'm sitting here like, what, only in the church does that happen. I mean, how many of you on April 15th are like, yes, tax man, right? You know, like, I'm coming. I'm but here, like, it's only in the church where people link arms under unity, under the gospel of Christ, saying, man, we're a part of something that's bigger than me, that people go, wow, I'm, I'm giving cheerfully and joyfully. It was incredible to me. It was one of the holiest moments that I've been a part of at Coastal Community Church. I mean that. And it was just because we're linked in unity. And you can't do that if there's disunity. Does that make sense? I mean, and by the way, as if you, you know, if my, any of my elders are in this room, like they'll tell you or get a leadership person, like there's nothing more draining and more time consuming than disunity. Just fussing through that, figuring that out. And it's only when a church is healthy and unified on their doctrine that they can move forward together to uplift the gospel of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, man, you know, he says, false teaching creates disunity. And, and secondly, he says, it'll wreck a person's faith. It'll wreck a person's faith. Because false understandings of doctrine or false understandings of, of your belief in God leads to a false view of outcomes, which destroys faith. And the goal of right doctrine is for us to know God, to know his character and his promises as he truly is. Not as we want him to be. I'm going to do something I, I don't normally do, okay? I, I got this email about a week and a half, two weeks ago, and I'm, I'm going to read it to you. So, and the reason I'm cautious with it, I'm always very, ca very cautious with what I put out there about other churches, okay? But I got an email from church, churches in this community that are gathering under the banner of revival, okay? Hey, it was like, Pastor John, come out to this revival. We're going to talk about revival. And here, here was what the email read, Okay? Revival, this is, I'm quoting this, revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in which people's lives are dramatically transformed and changed through, anybody have any ideas what should come next? What should dramatically change us? Huh? And the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That's what should change us. Glad you guys know that. That gives me some encouragement, and I mean that. <coughs> Revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in which people's lives are dramatically transformed and changed through miracles, signs, and wonders. That's what I got. And my heart sunk, and you want to know why? All you got to do is look at your scriptures and, and see there are times where generations go without seeing miracles. That's true. People sit in, people sit for, there were four generations in capti captivity in Egypt before God miraculously delivered. So what, those people didn't get to be a part of revival? Four generations? No, they were to trust God, that God was sovereign even in their suffering, that God was doing something. And I'm not here to nitpick local churches, but I want to tell you something, a false understanding of signs and wonders 
and the work of the Holy Spirit and a false understanding of miracles. And by the way, we discussed this last year in the Gospel of John. Remember when we went through the Gospel of John? We talked about miracles. What do we talk about? What were the purpose of miracles? The purpose of miracles is to authenticate the gospel of Jesus Christ. What should be transforming people is the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. The greatest miracle in human history is a dead heart that starts beating for the things of God. That's a great miracle. It gets imparted the person and work of the Holy Spirit in their lives so that now the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it now lives inside of a person so that the grave, as we just sang about, no longer has a hold on me. That's an incredible miracle. And I get concerned when I get that kind of an email that tells me that miracles are the things that are going to start revival because here's the danger of it. What happens if the miracle doesn't happen? I come in, I'm expecting healing, and I don't get healed. What does that mean? What does that mean? Because a person's going to leave that, that teaching time and go, maybe God's incapable. God's not incapable. God can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, however he wants to do it. If you remember last week when I talked about trying to get the Kroger property, I said, if we don't get it, and I said very carefully, I said, I don't want to tread on the sovereignty of God. God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, whenever he wants to do it. Remember that? I didn't say it wouldn't be a church. I just said that from human where we sit, may not. Our God's not incapable. Number two, a person comes into us teaching like that, and they, they go, you know what? Maybe, maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I'm not healed. There's no miracle because of my faith. Let me tell you something. The miracles of God have a whole lot less to do with my faith than his ability. And so people leave those kind of events going, man, I, maybe it's me. And so this, this poor teaching, and it's a bunch of bunk, and it leaves people's faith shipwrecked. I, was, I know I'm going off a rabbit trail. Forgive me. Okay, but I think it illustrates what Paul's teaching Timothy. Best book I ever read on revival, right here, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Pick it up and read it, all right? If you're, if you're like, man, I want to see revival in the country. I want to see revival in the country. This is, this is the book you need to read. It will teach you some great things. It's called, ready? Revival, okay, by Martin Lloyd-Jones, all right? So this is what he calls the characteristics of revival, ready? Listen to this. We have seen some of the general characteristics of revival. Number one, a sense of of the majesty of God. We talked about that at the beginning of the Beyond series. What we talk about? The glory of God above all else. It's the beginning point of revival. Number two, a personal sense of sinfulness, a conviction of our humanity in light of the glory of God. Number three, a sense of the wonder of salvation through Jesus Christ and a desire that others might know it. In other words, recapturing the importance of the gospel and recapturing the idea of evangelism. Other people need to know we've been set free through the gospel of Christ. And number four, and I love this, we've seen too that in a, in a time of revival, people are aware of the presidency of the Holy Spirit over everything and the life of the whole community. In other words, we become a people that are spirit-led, not for miracles, but the dying to self. And God is moving in our midst through the power of his Holy Spirit. That is a great definition of revival. 
and right teaching leads to right outcomes. And Paul, Paul here says to Timothy, listen, if, you're not, if your teaching is wrong, it can shipwreck a person's faith. And so we have to be cautious that our teaching is right. Number, number three, the priority of right teaching. Paul says, here's the outcome of right teaching. I actually preached on this verse, I believe, last fall during the series called Authentic. So I'm not going to preach on it this morning, but highlight it, okay? The outcome of right teaching is this. The purpose of my instruction, right doctrine, if you will, is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. Paul says, right te- the overflow of right teaching is we love one another, we live life with a pure heart and a clear conscience, and we have a genuine faith. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that just sound freeing? Every time I read that verse, I feel like I'm breathing fresh air. Like, yeah, that's how I want to live, right? And that's the out- overflow of right teaching. Now, Paul here in this next ber- verse says, this is what the beginning of right teaching, which, again, fascinating to me. Because it's not what we generally teach on in our churches, okay? And so Paul gets very specific about the false teaching he's dealing with in this church and a proper handling. He says, the beginning point, Timothy, of teaching right things in your church is understanding the proper place of the law of God. Now, I know some of you are about to go, okay, stick with me. All right, here we go. We'll move through this. 1 Timothy 3.6. But some people have missed the whole point. They've turned away from these things. They spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. We know that the law is what? What is it? Good. Circle that, because you don't hear that much in Protestant churches, right? You talk about the law of Moses, like, oh, we, we kind of quote Romans 8 out of context. I'm free from the law, you know? No, no, the law is good, Paul says. And we're going to talk about that here briefly, all right? The law is good when used correctly, for the law was not intended for people who do what is right. Is there anybody here that does what is right? Oh, wow. No, I got the right, right group of people then. All right, here we go. This is free. So it's not intended if you're, if you're perfect. That's what he's saying. If you got your life together, it ain't for you. So guess what? Looks like the law's for us. Okay, how is it for us, all right? It's for people who are lawless and rebellious and who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their mother and father and to commit murders. Laws for people who are sexually immoral, who practice homosexuality and are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who have done anything that contradicts the wholesome teaching of God that comes from the glorious good news and trust in me, our blessed Father, our blessed God. It's a proper understanding of the law of God. Let's talk about that quickly. It's a proper understanding of the law of God. How is the law of God good? The law mirrors the character of God. Now, there's three uses of the law. I'm going to, co- I'm going to cover one this morning, okay? The law mirrors the character of God. The character of God is perfectly good. The law of God reflects his character. I want you to get this, okay? God can't have any sin or evil in his presence. His holiness will consume it. He can't have sin or evil or pride or selfishness or conceit or adultery or lying or coveting or worry or gossip in his presence. His perfect goodness and holiness will consume sin. And so when Paul makes this list, and it's not an exhaustive list, I love it. Like, when I'm reading that list, I'm like, yeah, I'm not one of them. Ooh, I am that one. All right? It covers us all. You ever fudge the truth? You're condemned by the law of God. 
His character will consume who you are. And I think the problem with American Christianity is most of us think that we're basically good. I'm okay. I mean, I'm not as bad as, right? It's a great passage in Luke 18, and I've taught it many times. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it here this morning, but in Luke chapter 18, what we often call the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, right? And what does he ask Jesus? What must I do to what? Anybody know? Inherit eternal life. What do I need to do to be saved? How do I get into heaven? Let me ask you something. If someone came up to you and said, hey, what do I need to do to get into heaven? What would you do? What would you tell them? What would you tell them? What would be the first words out of your mouth? You need to what? Accept Jesus. Pray this prayer with me. Seems like the... If, if after church, someone came up and I accidentally left my mic on, say, Pastor John, I'd like to get into heaven, and you heard me, overheard me over the speaker say anything other than accept Jesus, you'd probably come unglued, right? It's not what Jesus does. The rich young ruler comes to him. He says, what do I need to do to inherit, inherit, inherit eternal life? And you know what Jesus tells him? He quotes to him the law of God. He says, be good. But keep the law. Honor your father and mother. You know the Ten Commandments. Do them. What in the world is Jesus doing? Doesn't Jesus know that's not how you share Jesus? You know, kind of thing. Like, what's he doing? Why does he do that? Because this guy is full of self-righteousness and pride. He's not ready for the gospel. What does the gospel mean, by the way? What's the word gospel mean? He doesn't know he needs good news. Why doesn't he know that? He thinks he's already good. And so he quotes him the law, and he says, do these things. And what's the rich young ruler say? Remember? I've kept them all. I never lied. I've never coveted. I've kept the Sabbath holy. I've never used the Lord's name in vain. You kidding me? I mean, he hasn't looked very deeply into himself. Oh, and Jesus, oh, okay. One thing you lack. Sell everything and trust me. What's the Bible say? Did he repent? Oh, he went away sad. What was Jesus getting at? Can we buy our salvation by getting rid of everything? No, he was getting at the idol of his heart. You're, you're captivated by stuff. The law of God is a reflection of the character of God. We live in a culture that hasn't yet come to grips with that. We've given this false gospel out. Hey, just accept Jesus. Just pray this prayer. And by the way, that's an important step in this. But it's not until you understand how wretched you are in the, in the, in the presence of God. You have no hope. The beginning of revival, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, is being captured with the glory of God and the sinfulness of humanity. Until then, we're not in a position for revival. And Paul says to this young teacher, right teaching, and it begins with this, understand the character of God. Isn't that incredible? The glory and the awesome, because God, because the law reflects our sinfulness. It mirrors God's character and reflects our sinfulness. As you read the law of God, you're going to be captured with, man, I'm a mess apart from the grace of God. So Paul says the law is good. The problem is my heart my human condition and my ability is not. The law reminds me I'm a sinner, not because I do sin, but because I, my nature is sin, right? You can do this with your kids. Simple. Just before dinner, make some hot chocolate chip cookies, walk away and say, hey, kids, don't eat the cookies till after dinner. Right? 
What, what happens inside those kids? I didn't even know the cookies were there. As soon as you say don't, you become aware they're there. That's when it, what, here's how it goes in my house. This is what my poor wife has to deal with. Come here, kid, get that cookie, come on, get that cookie. You know, kind of thing, you know. But, but the law reveals what's really there. Does that make sense? The law reveals, man, don't covet. As soon as you're told not to covet, man, I sure wish I had that. I got news for you. Your pastor, he's a coveter. Right? It's amazing to me how quickly I can get dissatisfied with the stuff I have. Man, I wish I had that. Ooh, man, look. I, I remember once before I was going to a men's retreat. And I drove by all these houses on the water and waited as a men's retreat. Like I'm supposed to be the pastor at the men's retreat. I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. What a garbage house I have that has indoor plumbing and electricity and air conditioning and plenty. Man, my house stinks, right? You know, just quickly how, whoo, I become a coveter. The law of God reminds us, Paul says this in Romans 7, but how can it be? Paul said, did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good command for its own evil purposes. Church, the law reveals our desperate need for a Savior. The law, at the end of the day, reminds me I am much worse than I think I am. The law should motivate me to search for a Savior, which, by the way, we're going to look at next week. Church, what's exciting to me, what we just covered, this is the seeds of revival. It's not waiting for signs and wonders, man. It's the proper understanding of the character of God being preached and an honest reflection of my sinfulness and the character of, of our God and the human heart and the human condition and awakening me to my desperate need of salvation, my desperate need of a Savior given to me freely by the grace of God. That is the miracle of revival. And this is what Paul starts with in training this young pastor. Always be aware of the sinfulness of, of human nature and the human condition revealed to us through the law of God. Always remind the people of their desperate need for a Savior. Jesus is not some tack on to our life. He is all we have. Praise God for the law as a tool to remind me of my desperate need for saving. Strips away my self-righteousness. I'm going to close here with prayer in just a minute. I remember two Mother's Days ago, I came home with a Mother's Day gift for my wife. It was a, uh, she has a bracelet. What are those things called? Pandora bracelet. And I came home with a, is it a charm? Is that what it's called? A charm? Now I feel bad saying that. It feels kind of weird. Uh, anyway, so a charm for her bracelet, okay? And I brought it home, and I held, my three kids were in the room, and I held it up and said, hey, guys, look what I got mom for Mother's Day, okay? And the two boys, my two older boys, like, huh, that's nice. And they went back to whatever they're doing. And my daughter, and by the way, if you don't have a daughter, man, daughters are great because they're so attentive to things. Like, my daughter has bailed me out of more things than I can even imagine, you know? And so I hold it up, and she goes, mommy already has one of those. <laughs> Thank God for that. Okay, thank God for that moment of clarity, all right? And, uh, but I could have reacted differently. I could have said, why you got to tell me the truth? Why you got to be a killjoy? Like, I went out and got this, and Mom's going to be excited. No, what did she do? She reflected the truth. You give her that, you're in big trouble. That's what she was saying subtly, okay? 
And from that day on, and a little lesson I learned, you're coming with me when we go shopping. All right, I've been, it's been much better since then, you know? So I realized she knows what she's doing. It's a great picture of the law of God. It's not the cosmic killjoy. It's a revelation of what's really going on in me. Next week, we're going to unpack this further as Paul goes on to talk about the, the great saving grace of God. But in Romans chapter 7, that's probably the passage where Paul wrestles with the goodness of the law and how it reveals the human condition. And, and you get done Romans 7, and it's very depressing, actually, by the end, except for one verse, Romans chapter 7, verse 25. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. He's our only hope for justification. He's our only hope for sanctification. And he's our only hope for glorification. And Timothy reminds Paul, I mean, Paul reminds Timothy, hold up the law so that the people know their desperate need for a savior. It's Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this reminder of our need. And God, for the one in this room that has been self-righteous, for the one in this room that thinks that they're okay, I'm okay, you're okay, but that maybe this morning as they reflect on the character of God, they will be reminded they are not okay. And in their sin and in rebellion and in their selfishness and in their self-righteousness, they're going to stand before the God of the universe and they're going to be judged all the way down to motives. And it's a terrifying place to be apart from the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this week, God, I pray that they will wrestle with their condition and be reminded of their need That we would be a humble people because the human condition strikes all of us. The human condition and the law of God reminds us every single one of us is in need of a Savior. And we thank God for our victory, not in being good, but in Christ Jesus alone, the law keeper, the one who credits righteousness to us by grace through faith. Give him praise, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, church, this morning, this is our offering time. If you're a guest, I want you to know we're not for your money. This is one of the ways we worship God at Coastal Community Church. If you'd like to join us in that, you're certainly welcome to do so. We have one of our prayer team members or a couple of prayer team members here at the front. If you're here this morning, you'd like to talk to someone about, man, how do, how do I find freedom in Christ? They would love to talk to you and pray with you this morning. If you have any other prayer needs, they are here to minister to you. Uh, and with that, we'll make our tithes and offerings, and I will turn it over to Nate. Above all things, this love endures forever.